0: Thanks for tuning in. Small town Placerville in Central California was a great place for Annie Leigh growing up. With less than 10,000 residents, its roots were steeped in the gold rush. Today, its sleepy downtown streets are dotted with antique shops, art galleries, and restaurants. Born to Vietnamese immigrants in San Jose, Annie was raised by her aunt and uncle. Her brother Dan enjoyed spending time with his sister. She was a silly one, with boundless energy, and was always smiling and happy. Annie was exceptionally bright and excelled in high school, and in 2003 was valedictorian. She received $160,000 in scholarship scholarships. She left high school with big dreams. The New York Daily News reported, that she wrote in her high school yearbook that she wanted to become a laboratory pathologist and said, I've got to go to school for about 12 years first, get my M.D. and be certified as a surgeon. Just hope that all that hard work is going to pay off and I'm really going to enjoy my job. She loved fashion, enjoyed wearing skirts, high heels, and matching accessories. Students would hear her heels clicking on the hard floor down the hall and knew it was Annie. She had a fondness for fried chicken, yet never put on a pound on her petite four foot 90-pound frame. She won a prestigious National Institutes of Health Fellowship while she was an undergraduate in bioscience at the University of Rochester. Then went on to Yale University, where she won a fellowship From the National Science Foundation. Her mission was to use her knowledge to enhance and lengthen human life and reduce disabilities and illnesses. Life couldn't have been going any better for Annie. She was working hard at obtaining a joint doctoral and medical degree in 2009, had just begun her third year as a student in pharmacology at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Her personal life was going well, too. She was engaged to Jonathan Wadowski, a Columbia University graduate. Their lavish wedding was planned for mid-September in New York. The campus at Yale was at times plagued with crime, theft, and violence against women. It has its own police force that works along with the city police. Annie had written an article for one of the university publications, discussing the crime and was well aware that even with safety measures in place, such as escorts and shuttle services, the crimes continued. Annie lived across the city with her roommate Natalie. On a tree-lined street in the East Rock neighborhood, they shared an apartment in a historic three-story house. On Tuesday, September 8, 24-year-old Annie awoke that morning dressed in a brown knee-length skirt, matching brown shoes, and a green short-sleeved shirt. Her shoulder-length brown hair framed her face and lively brown eyes. In just five days, she would be walking down the aisle. She arrived at the university and headed to the Sterling Hall of Medicine, where she worked in a lab that conducted experiments on mice. The Record Journal reported that she was part of a research team that focused on enzyme research that could have implications in cancer, diabetes, and muscular dystrophy. Raymond Clark III also worked at Yale University. For five years, he was an animal services technician in the animal lab in the basement at number 10 Amistad Street. He was raised in a loving and supportive family and at the lab worked with his fiancée, sister, and brother-in-law. At Bramford High School, he played ball. With his strapping athletic build of five foot nine and 190 pounds, he was a good infielder and had a great pitching arm. But he also had a darker side. He sexually assaulted his girlfriend, and when she broke up with him, he harassed her until she filed a complaint with police they talked to Ray and warned him to stay away from her. The woman didn't pursue it and no charges were filed. Although Ray never attended Yale as a student, he was very particular about the animal research lab and treated the space as his domain. He cleaned the cages and looked after the rodents, mostly mice that were used in experiments, and he demanded that the lab be kept clean and orderly and when it wasn't, he would lash out at those responsible. Rather than asking politely, his style was to reprimand the offender. That morning, Ray headed off to work at the lab, wearing blue jeans, a dark-colored jacket with white stripes, and white shoes. He arrived with a smile and checked in using a pen with green ink. He texted Annie about the cleanliness of the animal cages and asked her to come to the lab. Annie didn't think it was unusual. She was used to attending the lab at Amistad to conduct experiments. Expecting to return, she left her cell phone and purse in the office. Her heels clicked as she walked the three blocks to the lab, swiped her key card, and entered lab number G13 at 10.11 AM. The Hartford Current reported that Ray entered the lab almost an hour later, and remained in the lab for 46 minutes. What exactly happened during those minutes isn't known. But what we do know is that Ray attacked Annie and attempted to sexually assault her. She fought back, hitting and scratching him on his arms and back. Their struggle was violent and intense. He broke her jaw and collarbone. Then he strangled her with such force that she suffocated. Ray panicked. He'd gone too far. He had to get rid of Annie's body. But how? He walked down the hallway, past a mechanical room and three other labs to number G-22. Over the next four hours, he used his keycard fifty-five times between the two labs. Ray moved Annie's body numerous times while he cleaned up the blood. Down the hallway and around the corner, he popped open a ceiling tile and stashed a sock and rubber glove covered in blood. Then he lifted Annie's lifeless and beaten body and carried it to one of the mechanical rooms. There he found a crevice in the wall used for pipes and wires that ran between the floors. He placed her head down with her legs pointed up and pushed with all his force until her bloody body was stuffed into the cavity. As he did so, he dropped his green pen. He covered her with insulation and placed an air freshener nearby to mask the decaying smell that would eventually seep out. Ray changed his clothes and left the building That evening, Natalie was concerned when her roommate didn't come home. They usually communicated throughout the day, and she hadn't heard from Annie at all. She called police and reported her missing. The next day, the local police and the FBI searched the university. Police and security guards lined the sidewalks and blocked entrances. Employees were asked for identification and were shown a photo of Annie and asked if they had seen her. There were over 75 surveillance cameras. Investigators began reviewing the footage. A camera had captured Annie entering the Amistad building. On Thursday afternoon, investigators went to Annie's apartment and retrieved her toothbrush for a DNA sample. The Yale University police asked for the public's help in locating her and offered a $10,000 reward. Rumors started to circulate that perhaps she was a nervous bride, had changed her mind, and got cold feet. But after investigators checked in with her friends, family, and fiancé, they knew she wasn't a bride on the run. On Friday, Another dozen detectives were brought in from the state police to assist. There were now more than 100 police and FBI involved in the search for Annie. They interviewed employees who worked in the Amistad building. Ray reported that he'd seen her leave at 12.45 that day, carrying a notebook and bags of most food. Officers scrolled through hours of video, frame by frame not only looking for someone in her clothing, but anyone her size, as perhaps she'd left the building in a lab coat. None of the surveillance cameras had captured Annie leaving the building, but officers did note a change in Ray's behavior. By the afternoon of Annie's disappearance, he was no longer smiling and was covering his face with his hands. On Saturday, investigators got a big break when they discovered that bloody glove and sock that Ray hid in the ceiling. They also discovered work boots covered in blood with the name Ray on them. On Sunday, Ray was playing shortstop in a softball game. His team were in the playoffs and plainclothes officers were in the crowd. After the game, he went to a county fair and they followed. As 5 p.m. neared, Annie should have been walking down the aisle in a beautiful white dress to marry the love of her life. Instead, investigators at the Amistad building had detected a foul odor from the basement. Police search dogs were brought in, and Annie's lifeless body was found stuffed into the wall. Investigators and detectives uncovered a large amount of evidence, including the green pen and a matching sock to the one found in the ceiling. Wearing protective clothing, they sifted through the evidence, including the trash and recycling from the building. On Monday night, the university held a vigil to remember Annie. Yale President Richard Levin told the crowd of over 100 that no amount of hardware can overcome the darkness of the human soul. Students were concerned for their safety because someone with a key card, someone among them, had killed Annie. Investigators eliminated her fiancé and narrowed down their search to a small number of students and employees with keycard access to the lab. Although the security system recorded those who entered and exited, they also knew that sometimes when multiple people are coming and going, not everyone swipes their key card. Sometimes it's only the first person. Officers in the lab interviewed students and employees when an officer noticed Ray cleaning up and thought it was odd because it was already pretty clean. And in particular, he was cleaning an area where Annie had been. He scrubbed a floor drain with cleaner and steel wool, then moved over to scrub the floor under a sink near another drain. A coworker of Annie's mentioned to an officer that she spotted a box of wipes with blood spots. The box of wipes had been on a steel cart in the lab that Annie had last been in. Later, that same officer saw Ray walk over to the cart and move the box of wipes so that the blood spots weren't visible. On Tuesday, a week after Annie's murder, police and FBI agents descended on Ray's first floor apartment in nearby Middleton. He was placed in handcuffs and taken away. They served two search warrants, one to retrieve his DNA and a second one to seize evidence from his apartment. From Ray, they got his fingerprints and samples from his hair, fingernails, and saliva. Just inside the door of his apartment, they spotted blood on the kitchen floor. Ray invoked his right to remain silent and did not give police a statement. The next day, he was released into the custody of his lawyer, while another warrant was issued for his Ford Mustang, which contained a pair of sneakers with ominous reddish stains. The medical examiner reported that Annie's neck had been compressed and she had been strangled. The evidence against Ray was stacking up. Using the key cards, investigators had determined he was the last person to see Annie alive. A lab coat in extra-large was found in a recycling box with red stains, a similar type of lab coat that Ray was seen wearing on camera. And in the G13 lab, a single bead from Annie's necklace was discovered. Ray checked into the Superint Motel in Cromwell. At 8.30 a.m. on Thursday, police swooped in and arrested him. He was charged with murder and appeared at a bail hearing wearing a striped polo shirt and tan pants with shackles around his legs. His bail was set at $3 When Ray's socks were removed, two notes were discovered. He'd written to co-workers to try and establish an alibi. When asked about the scratches and bruises on his body, he told officers they were from his cat and playing softball. But police believe they happened either when he attacked Annie or when he stuffed her body into the wall. Annie returned home to California to be buried. Instead of being on her honeymoon, she lay in a casket as her family wept at her funeral. Her brother Christopher read a poem written by her mother titled Farewell, my child. Her fiancé, Jonathan, wore his wedding ring as a symbol of love for his bride that would never be. DNA on the green pen and sock matched both Annie and Ray. Her DNA had also been found on the box of wipes and the extra-large lab coat. Semen was also found in the evidence, In the G-13 and G-22 labs, chemical analysis discovered bloodstains on the walls that had been washed. And remember that air freshener? It contained Ray's fingerprints. The New Haven Register reported that a second felony murder count was later added for the murder committed during the commission of another felony. Ray was facing 25 to 60 years in prison for each charge. He pled not guilty to both. The public and the media all wondered why Ray murdered Annie. In March 2011, 17 months after he viciously murdered her, he changed his plea to guilty and entered an Alfred plea to the attempted sexual assault. In Connecticut, the Alfred plea means that a defendant agrees that the state has enough evidence to likely convict. The media and the public finally got an answer as to why she was murdered. Annie's family traveled thousands of miles to attend Ray's sentencing. He stood and faced her family and fiancé and apologized. Then he was sentenced to 44 years. He will be in prison until 2053. Supervisor, Assistant State's Attorney, John Waddock, said, Who will be there waiting for him? Most, if not all, of his family will be gone. He will have no real future. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Scott Dileski. Pamela was the powerhouse behind her famous husband, a California lawyer who represented celebrity clients accused of murder. She had no idea that one day a murderer would appear on her doorstep. If you are dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free. At murder20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder and 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music, sound effects, and fastening studios and quick sounds and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.